Hi, I'm Mel Todd Wood. At CD Media, we've decided never to have a paywall on any of our sites. I hate those. But we have to make money, so we do have advertisements. But some people don't like ads. So what can you do? You can sign up for our no-ad subscription. It's a few bucks a month. You go to the top of any of our sites and sign up for the subscription, and you get access to all of our websites, all of the news from around the world. This includes our Eastern European, Israeli, Balkan sites. It includes armedforces.press. It includes all the U.S. papers that we've opened, the Miami Independent, the Connecticut Sentinel, the Georgia Record, the Manhattan.press, and the, those that are yet to come in the pipeline, which we'll be opening soon. So you get all this access to fantastic news from around the world with no ads, no display ads, no pop-up ads. I think you'll love it. Please check us out. It helps support CD media, independent media, and basically confronting the propaganda that's being put out by the corporate media. Thank you. Now let's get to our guest. Welcome to American Conversations. Now, for uh, almost two years, we have spoken to people who have been vax injured. We've spoken to doctors who have been annihilated professionally by their medical boards who have gone up against the medical narrative coming out of the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, the NIAID. And tonight we have two professionals with us, Dr. James Thorpe and Nurse Michelle Gershman who in fact are people who have a valid and valuable observation to, to give to everyone in our audience about what they are seeing among pregnant women and labor and delivery units at the hospitals. And this is very important for people to understand. First of all, Jim and Michelle, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us on, Christine. So, Dr. Thorpe, let's start with you first. Uh, as an OBGYN, you're based in Florida. You've written a lot of documents about uh, what has happened post-COVID, but I want you to explain to the public so they absorb, they, they absorb what we have to show them tonight, not in terms of graphs, but in terms of a conversation. What exactly have you done in the past to give us a baseline so later in our conversation, people can understand that things have shifted with pregnant women and newborns and fetuses since COVID. What was pre-COVID baseline like for you as a professional in this field? Yes. Well, pre-COVID for me was the status quo, pretty much what I've seen my entire career. I've been doing high-risk obstetrics for 43 years. So, uh, and I do a high volume of practice and it's important for you and your viewers to understand that I'm really a sub subspecialist, if you will. So I'm not, I serve as an expert to the board certified OBGYN doctors of which I am one, 
but I'm also board certified maternal fetal medicine specialist, um, requiring three additional years of training to focus just on high risk obstetrics. So I serve as a consultant to the OBGYN doctors who are actually catching the babies. So um, yes. So I you look you you look at the fetus uh, in vitro. You look at the fetuses that that are that are in the womb of the mothers to see if there's any abnormalities. Is, is that how we can best describe this to the audience? That's right. I, I take um, from my main practice uh, in Missouri and Illinois in the central part of the United States. Um, yes, I, I act as a consultant and I see patients face-to-face um, -face by telemedicine and I review their ultrasounds. Now, in, in the general context, I get calls from all over the country and have had calls from all over the country and patients that, that I kind of separate out as, as non-pregnant patients. So what have I seen? I saw normal fertility rates. I saw normal menstrual periods. Um, I mean, completely normal. I saw a lot of healthy, beautiful babies, um, pre-born babies in the womb by my sonograms uh, and face-to-face. My usual cadre of complications, which were pretty low, um, and everything was business as usual, really, up and through up until 2021. Okay, and Michelle, you have you've been a nurse for how long? Five years. And in the labor and delivery for how long? Two years. So I actually work postpartum. So the babies come to me when they're two hours old. Okay. And so you would see how many nurses on the floor during that period of time? When I started working there two years ago, um, every morning when I would come on, there would be 13 nurses working. Each nurse has three or four mom and babies. So three or four couplets, we call it. Mm -hmm. So we've always had about 12 or 13. And and even if the babies were uh, preemies, you would see them as well? Yes. So if a baby is considered healthy, the, once they're delivered, they come to postpartum when they're two hours old. Um, so once in a while, a baby would go to NICU, maybe they were delivered a little early, um, or, you know, they come out and something, they just require some extra monitoring. Um, and so they'll end up going to NICU in that case. But when I started working there, usually we had couplets um, most of the time. So the mom and the baby would come after two hours after delivery. Okay. So, uh, Dr. Thornton, let me go back to you. So when, I don't want to say post-COVID, I guess it's during during the rollout, which would have been, you know, I mean, we, we have a lot of consternation and disagreement about when women who were pregnant first received these so-called vaccinations. So let's just start during the rollout of late December 2020, going into sort of the, the big push of the first six, seven, eight, nine months of 2021. What were your observations at that point in time? Well, what my observations were, Christine, was that I was very concerned about the narrative. Um, 
for many which, different which which narrative that it was safe and that the, these these shots were safe and effective for pregnant women no no um well i was very very concerned about that narrative yeah but but i was very very concerned about the whole narrative of there's no effective treatment stay home until your lips well that's 2020 that that was you know stay home till your lips turn blue but right. let's get into you know the 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 covid shots that were rolled out in 2021 here in america what was it that you saw uh with women who were pregnant childbearing years got pregnant after they received the shots Yeah, beginning, um, and it wasn't until uh, three months later, really, March, where I started sawing, seeing problems. I saw a massive number of problems associated with, with abnormal bleeding. Um, I mean, it was very, very significant. Um, abnormal bleeding with women who were pregnant or not pregnant at the time? Um, at the time, not pregnant. Um, and just a massive onset of very, very significant, heavy um, bleeding in pregnant in, and postmenopausal women and, and also premenarchal, young prepubertal women. Um, and it was very con concerning and it was abrupt and it was impressive and uh, some very rare cases uh, of what we observed is the decidual cast shedding, which is kind of a complicated phenomenon, so I won't spend much time on it. Well, put that into layman's terms, because people need to know that. I, I know from our interviews in 2021 of women who were vax injured, a lot of the women would tell me in the pre-interviews privately, because I would ask them as a female reporter, you know, they would tell me about the neurological, the cardio, the vascular, you know, elements of their ailments. And then I would ask them privately, you know, what about your menstrual periods? And um, there was not one one woman who I interviewed who did not tell me that there was some complications, some irregularities, uh, even if they were of childbearing years or even if they were postmenopausal. I think we had very few women that wanted to talk about it publicly, but we did have someone who I, who I interviewed who did say on camera that she she had been postmenopausal for 10 years and then all of a sudden she got her her period and it was just like off the charts compared to her earlier periods uh you know before she was postmenopausal so explain explain what you heard what you saw as a doctor it's important for people to hear this and I don't care how graphic this is because okay. we need to wake people up okay it's, it's really graphic but um, there's a phenomena that traditionally um, is, is quite rare, Christine, um, that's called decidual cast shedding. Big words. I'll break that down. Okay. A decidual, the decidual is kind of like your audience knows it from leaves, a deciduous trees. Okay. It's the same thing with the endometrium. The inside lining of the endometrium is shed not every year uh, with like trees do, but every month with her period. Now, in rare circumstances, um, there uh, with, say, for example, three specific problems, we would usually see the decidual cast shedding 
was with an ectopic pregnancy or uh, extended use of progesterone, unnatural progesterone taken by pill or shot or IUD uh, or by a miscarriage. So in the last 100 years, 108 years, there's only about, there's less than 50 of those reported in over a century of medical uh, literature. In just seven months, just seven months of 20. So this is 2021. We saw 290. Was that was that nationwide that was reporting into theirs or was no, this? No, that was reported. Tiffany Parato and CHD, Children's Health Defense. Uh, I work with a lot of these uh, doctors, Dr. Brian Hooker and uh, Dr. Mills and, and uh, several other, uh, Jill Newman, um, and we have um, just Sue Peters, um, several docs around the country, and, and Tiffany Parato is, is, is actually a lay person. She's not a medical person. She's a corporate executive, and she posted thousands of these on Facebook. Well, when it got inconvenient for Facebook to support the narrative and it was hurting the narrative of pushing the vaccine, Facebook trashed through all these women under the bus, took their platform away, threw them under the bus. What was, her, what was her source of information? If her source of information was uh, she would have patients uh, volunteer their history and they would post their information. Why would um, they go? To, why would they go to Tiffany? Uh, because Tiffany uh, set that uh, set a website up on Facebook. Okay, so we so destroyed people and, to report any of the these complications or ailments. Uh, to re report menstrual, specifically menstrual abnormalities. So and these are menstrual ab abnormalities after they received the shots in 2021. Now, menstrual abnormalities for anyone, anyone. But and we'll talk about that. That's important. So no age limit on that. No. All right. So so what did what did you see uh, in your practice separate from what what Tiffany was collecting? I saw the same. I, I saw a lot of patients calling me up with uh, with very very heavy abnormal menses, the same as you saw, Christine. In terms of pregnancy. Uh, around March, uh, I started seeing a significant increase in miscarriage, in spotting and, and bleeding during miscarriage, uh, uh, during early pregnancy. And I also saw more, um, more onset of anomalies, abnormalities. I saw more chromosomal abnormalities. I saw more uh, fetal cardiac abnormalities. I saw more fetal deaths, dead fetuses in the womb. Was there a, was there a time period here? Was it the first semester, second semester? I'm sorry, first trimester, second trimester, third trimester? All what of them. was the pattern? All of them. Severe preeclampsia and, and then also severe heavy bleeding at delivery. What about the placentas during during the births? Yeah, there, there's a problem. There's a problem with the placentas before birth, okay? Before birth, there were uh, much greater incidence of abnormal appearing placentas on the ultrasound, on the sonogram. 
Was there any evidence, doctor, that uh, women of ch childbearing ages uh, who were not vaccinated had irregularities just because they were in the presence of younger women who had been vaccinated? Yes, that's one of the very important findings of, of our publication with Tiffany Parato and my CHD colleagues. Very important um, of, of those uh, thousands and thousands of women that we followed, um, there were a significant number that were not vaccinated that were in close proximity or slept with somebody that was vaccinated. Our study is absolutely consistent with a shedding phenomenon. So the, the early on in, in uh, I don't want to say early on, this is probably mid-summer of 2021, I had several men call me because they're young teenage mid-teens, late teens, were on sports teams and they were their children, their daughters were not vaccinated, but some of their teammates were. And they called me and asked me point blank, Christine, have you heard anything about this? And I said, only anecdotally. Um, it certainly hasn't been recognized by the CDC or, you know, the, the FDA or anything, but but your research absolutely with your colleagues have supported that this is not anecdotal. This is, I mean, you know, scientifically, medically, that this was true. Is that correct? 100%, 100%. Not just with abnormal menses, but I'm concerned with newborn babies that are uh, getting exposed, whose moms haven't been vaccinated. I'm, I'm concerned about pregnant women who are unvaccinated, that come in close proximity. Could they be having problems? Um, absolutely, I'm concerned about that. Um, and and I, I will mention too, Christine, and I, I know that you know this because you know we, we spoke a lot and you have a really good background and a very good understanding of what's going on here medically. But I think that, and legally with these pharmaceutical companies, I think you're well aware, uh, um, and I think your, your audience should be too, that the internal documents of the pharmaceutical companies clearly knew before that there was spreading by shedding because they discuss it. That's true. That ha that happened in the Pfizer document dumps because of uh, Aaron Siri's FOIA case that is out there, which is tens of thousands of documents that not everybody has had the chance to go through. And some people won't understand them. But yes, that evidence is, is clearly that it, it comes down to who knew what when. And this was known at least by Pfizer. We don't know yet if it was known by Moderna, but we can maybe speculate that FDA may know the answer to that, even though those documents haven't been released, as well as J&J. Michelle, let me go back to you. So in your experience, what's the shift after the rollout of the vaccinations in terms on the labor and delivery units and your experience in the hospital in California? So it's been really challenging working at this time with the vaccine rolling out. Um, it did start coming out in March and- 2021, 2021. Uh, correct. And so I was noticing that a lot of moms were delivering their babies early and they were going to NICU and they were delivering. Explain, what NICU, explain what NICU means because oh, okay. some of the audience may not know. So NICU is neonatal 
intensive care unit. So when the babies have something going on and they need extra monitoring, they go to NICU to have that extra monitoring. So pretty much they're not quite healthy enough yet to go home. So they go to NICU and the idea is they get better and they go home, you know, after a day or two, most of the time. But um, right in March or April, um, the NICU had over 80 babies in it. And on any normal day before the vaccines, there were always about 50 babies. And all of a sudden there were 80 babies. And um, a few nurses commented on it saying they're so busy in the NICU. And then, um, so anyway, when March and April came around, we started feeling the stress of the extra um, work um, as far as critically um, or critical care patients. So the moms would come to labor and delivery to deliver their baby. And um, if they were 35, 36 weeks, they were delivering their baby when they should be 38 to 40 weeks. The, but they would come in and say, I feel like something's wrong with the baby. I haven't been feeling the baby move. And either they go in and or they use an ultrasound and they see that in several cases, the baby passed away. Um, that's been happening a lot. They call that a fetal demise or they um, the baby's alive. Thank goodness. But, you know, a few weeks early to deliver. But the mom's blood pressure is so high that they the doctors say we need to have an emergency C-section and take out the baby. So your blood pressure will come down. Um, they call that pre-E. So they remove the baby, they do an emergency C-section, baby's a little early, you know, 36 weeks or so, goes to NICU. Um, and then um, the idea is the mom, her blood pressure should come down once the baby's removed. And when they put the mom on this medication to bring her blood pressure down, it's still not coming down. Um, and so, you know, the mother now requires all this extra monitoring and all this extra medication and all of this is disturbing the natural birthing process. So when the mother delivers the baby, it should be a peaceful event where the baby's born. And then you have the bonding time. You know, you learn how to breastfeed. Um, all of that is disturbed because these babies are coming out early through a very stressful surgery. And then they're taken to NICU. They're connected to these machines. And then same with mom. She's going to you know, postpartum, and then she has all these medications running, and she can't really get out of bed because um, she's on this medication that makes her super drowsy. Um, it's just a lot of extra work, and I don't really mind doing the extra work, but it's not—it's not fair. It shouldn't have happened in the first place. So um, there's that. That's been happening a lot in the last year, um, and also um, I think it was May last year. Um, so 2021, I got a patient at like 6 PM and she was complaining of severe abdominal pain. And, um, I checked her and she, you know, we do a pelvis, um, check where we press on her belly to see how her stomach feels. Um, and when you do that, a little bit of blood might come out and that's okay. That's normal. But when I did this, a clot came out like a blood clot, mm -hmm. a good size. And so, um, I called the doctor because um, it was a little bit uncomfortable for me how much blood came out. So the doctors came and all of a sudden the mom's just like not feeling well at all. 
She said she feels like she's going to pass out. The doctor comes in and they press on her belly and more clots come out. So we end up needing all this extra medication to help her. So it's almost a, you know, like a rapid response situation, but not, not quite. I mean, we were all in there. And then um, the doctor was putting her hand inside and removing clots and just kept pulling clots out. I've never seen so many clots come out of anything before. Were these elongated, elongated clots that they, were, yeah. that they were pulling out? Yes, yes. And she just kept pulling them out, pulling and pulling. And I don't even know how how they kept coming out because a person only has so much blood in their body and these clots were just coming out of her. And so I looked and I saw on her chart she had been recently vaccinated and so I just kind of thought like, oh my gosh, is this from the vaccine? Um, this is so much blood to be coming out and scary. And so um, they ended up stabilizing her. Um, I guess they finally stopped pulling out clots and the next day she was okay. But her baby had been in NICU too for some reason. I don't remember why now. Um, so did the, did the baby and mother survive? I think so. I know the mother did. I, I didn't get a chance to follow up with her baby because um, by the time I went home and came back, I think the mom had already gone home. Um, and then I had another mom that her baby was born and he was 40 weeks. So he should have been, um, you know, normal birth, normal delivery. And she, the baby was in the room with her on postpartum. So he was already a few hours old and he started having respiratory issues um, breathing issues. He was breathing too fast. So I called the doctor, the baby ended up going to NICU. Um, and, um, I felt, um, confident that, well, at least he's in NICU. He's being monitored, you know, hopefully he's going to be okay. He's 40 weeks. He should be okay. And then, um, I had this mom for three days and every time I asked about her baby, within the course of three days, she said, I don't know, something's wrong. They said that he's breathing really fast and they don't understand why and they're giving them medicine and um, we don't know what's what's going on. So after the three days, he should have gotten better, um, but she she was pretty um, sure that he wasn't. And I, no, I never really did find out what happened with that baby, but um, I looked at her chart too and it looked like she had been vaccinated. And so I noticed a lot of the 35, 30 week deliveries. Um, it looks like the mom had just been vaccinated like a week before. So I'm, you know, it's, they get the shot one, one day and then a, a week later they're delivering their babies early um, on a lot of cases. And there's also a doctor in there. And for a while I was reading his notes, um, you know, a few up until a few months ago, his notes would say, um, patient is COVID vaccinated, um, you know, like a checkoff list. And then if the patient was not vaccinated, he would ask her why. And then he would put like in quotations, like why she's not vaccinated. And uh, the way he wrote it, you can tell that he was trying to um, coerce them or shame them for not not being vaccinated. He would like write a big note about it, about what they talked about and why she didn't want to get it. So this doctor has many of these patients, um, especially because the hospital I work at is um, like a low income nonprofit type hospital. So we see, you know, the demographics are 
a lot of Medi-Cal patients. And so um, he um, has a lot of them. And so, so that means, you know, 90% of the patients in there delivering um, have been coerced into taking it while pregnant because he's very much pro take this vaccine. All right. So today is Thursday, October 20th. We'll be uh, releasing this tomorrow. I heard on NPR tonight that there is an increase in children at children's hospitals across the country. And many of them, uh, as reported by NPR, seem to have respiratory issues. Now they didn't, they would they did not give the demographics whether or not these were infants, newborns, you know, toddlers, seven, eight, nine-year-olds or anything like that. But I thought that that was just an interesting reporting and I only caught half of it, but it was on NPR. Dr. Thorpe, how many of the OBGYN doctors that you're exposed to are you aware of that are pushing for pregnant women to get these shots? Far too many, Christian. Are there conversations among OBGYNs about the dark side, the risk of giving these shots to pregnant women? No, Christine, and, and I, um, I'm appalled by it. And uh, up until yesterday, or I should say up until this past weekend, I was the only OBGYN doctor uh, in the country of 225,000 OBGYNs or more that uh, would oppose it. Because as you know, we're all threatened um, if we oppose it um, because there was a gag order, a formal gag order uh, in September last year, 13 months ago, um, that basically came out simultaneously, I'm sure, there was collusion and fraud and RICO violation involved because all the, about a hundred of them, specialty and subspecialty boards came out and the Federation of State Medical Boards came out and said, if you dare spread any COVID-19 misinformation, i.e. eliminate vaccine hesitancy, will destroy your career. Uh, it, it, they're trying to eliminate vaccine hesitancy. So they were threatening me and that rubbed me the wrong way. So. I uh, have been voraciously attacking the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I used to examine for them. I used to be part of them. Uh, the older docs there are my contemporaries, and I know them well. And um, I beg them to stop pushing the vaccine. I beg them to look at my data. I sent my data to them. Um, they refused to speak with me. Um, the chief, uh, the executive director, um, uh, who, who I know well, I won't mention his name. I, I like him. I've always respected them, um, but I, I no longer respect them. I feel badly for them because they're not being truthful. They listen, Christine, every, every person in the world knows man and woman, regardless of age, our creator endowed us with certain knowledge of things that are okay to do and things that are not okay to do. We all, as human beings, we all know you never use novel substances in pregnancy. We've had a lot of disasters in my specialty. You know, you and I can remember those. I know you do. Uh, you remember the horrible DES disaster, diethylstilbestrol. You remember the horrible 
thalidomide disaster, the Dalkon Shield disaster. Those were all preventable, horrible disasters that never should have happened. But the COVID-19 vaccine is contraindicated in breastfeeding. It should never, ever be given. It never should have been given. There's never a precedent to, for giving an experimental gene therapy to pregnant women and telling everybody that it's safe and effective. So the doctors in the American Board of OBGYN and all these specialties, they came out in unison, all of them with the same threat. So for, for your patients out there, please patients, you can't trust your doctor. You cannot trust your doctor or your nurse in the United States of America, because if they tell you the truth, they'll lose their paycheck. They're all being bribed by their paychecks. They're all being bribed. There's very few obstetricians. Like I said, up until last weekend, one other OBGYN doctor has stood by my side and came out of the closet. Uh, and she has a very large, very respected practice in Tampa. And uh, she came out and um, she's standing with me. And now uh, Dr. Christiane Northrup, who I'm sure you know, Christine, is a very close friend of mine. Uh, she's my only other uh, colleague in the country, although she's been, she's been retired for a while, but she's a brilliant physician. She knows the scoop. So she's been standing with me uh, ever since um, uh, for the last two years. So she understands what's going on. But And, and in terms of my specialty, maternal fetal medicine, there's probably only about 2,000 of us, and there's no other OBGYN doctor in the country um, that have come out and speak up. Now, I know some that are in the closet, so to speak, um, and I want to protect them. Um, but I'm, I'm very angry. I'm very angry at my physician colleagues. You know, I, I used to think that attorneys were the scum of the earth. And I, I say that lo lovingly. My beautiful bride, Maggie, is an attorney. And, and so I, I love her. That would cost you dinner tomorrow night, doctor. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Christine. But, um, but you know what? Now I have a high esteem, high esteem for attorneys, much more so than physicians. Physicians are scum of the earth. They are collecting their paychecks. They, there's no physician in this world, Christine, that is given informed consent. We talked about that yesterday. You know as well as I do, it's impossible for a physician to give informed consent. For well, it's impossible for anybody who's administered, distributed, created, or anything at this point in time, or any, any, any government agency or any approval agency in any country in, on the planet because nobody knows the long-term effects. And this is the experimental stage that everybody's in at this point in time. Um, I would add to that, Christine, that not only does nobody not know what's in it, but even Michelle, Rochelle Walensky and Janet Babcock, the heads of the CDC and FDA, they admitted, they confessed to the American people. We're withholding data from you. They've withheld the V-safe data. They've withheld Pfizer 5.3.6. They have a lot of blood on their hands. They're responsible. The CDC and the FDA are corrupt. Uh, patients out there, do not trust your government. Do not trust your hospitals. Do not trust your uh, the healthcare system. Do not trust them. Run from them because they don't care about you. All they care about is making money. The CDC and the FDA are fraudulent. 
The New England Journal of Medicine is fraudulent. Those 15 advisors that voted for the FDA to push this poison and my children, today. they voted today. Will show history. You mark my words, Christine. History will show that every single one of those 15 have a major fiduciary conflict of interest. As does well, we, 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 we can't go that far, Dr. Thorpe. I mean, they are on the record and they, 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 they were, um, you know, not on camera for most of the day, but they were when they voted and they have said, showing their faces, you know, no conflict of interest. We will wait until we investigate that to find out if those statements were true. We can't conclude that without the investigation. But having said that, Michelle, listening to Dr. Thorpe and listening to, you know, his discussion among colleagues and the fear, what's it like for, for the nurses who are in the labor and discovery in the NIC units? Do they talk among themselves like something's wrong here? Um, so for a long time, no. They, when I, I got a very disturbing email uh, I'm not sure if you wanted me to bring that up in this meeting. Go yes. ahead. Go so ahead. The, the email that I got last who was it first month. Who was it from? It was um, from a nursing supervisor. Correct. Yeah. I, it's, I, don't it's remember, okay. I don't remember her name at the moment, oh, but name doesn't nursing, matter. Nursing this, supervisor who oversees Fresno community and Clovis community hospital. Um, and so these hospitals deliver about 12,000 babies per year um, mm -hmm. together. And when I started working there, before the COVID vaccine came out, there were one to two fetal demises. So babies that had passed away inside the uterus, um, one to two every three months, we would see, you know, maybe one or two. And then right. once the vaccine started rolling out, every time I came to work, I would see like one fetal demise on the board, you know, from a different room. And a, and a, and a day, if you work five days a week, there'd be one on the board every day. Almost. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so I got this, this email. Um, and the email said that, as you know, we've had a, an increase in fetal demises. And in August, we had the record number for fetal demises in the history of this hospital plus the other hospital together there were 22 in august 22 so, across uh, 22 that month correct oh. that month between two hospitals and, and what so, would it have been pre-covid maybe two okay two a month so there were 22 so that's that's a huge percentage yes. of increase yes and i was so disgusted reading this email because I, in my head, I'm like, how are people not talking about this? And so um, how are people not outraged? Why isn't this all over the news? If people, if their babies are dying um, and everybody's like, oh, okay, oh, well. And so I asked the nurse at the nurse's station and I said, why are all these babies dying? I mean, obviously it's the vaccine, but if I say that they kind of think I'm crazy. So they, the nurse that I asked, she said, I think it's the pesticides <laughs> and I just was so dumbfounded. I'm like, people are so brainwashed if they really think that pesticides are causing their babies to die. And in my experience, Mother Nature will do whatever it takes to make that baby survive. Uh, and if you inject yourself with man-made toxic ingredients, we don't even know what they are, 
Mother Nature cannot keep up with all of this. And so the baby ends up passing away. I don't know if the, I have a feeling the, the blood clots are stopping the blood from going through the placenta to the baby, or it could be well, anything. We, we, we know for, for those who are vax injured, and, and I've, I'm in touch with families who have literally lost their loved ones after receiving the shots, <clears throat> uh, that sometimes it can go through the brain barrier so that they mm-hmm. will have aneurysms and they die, or they, mm-hmm. they end up with neurological issues. So in terms of the barriers, we know that uh, the injections were initially told to the public we're going to stay in the arms, but we know that it's gone to different organs. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's the kidney or you know the fallopian tubes. We, we, we know this, which makes sense if we're having all these menstrual issues with these women. Um, so Michelle, when they sent out that email to you, was that a blanket email that went out to the staff just making the announcement that in the Fresno and that other hospital these are the statistics or was it open for discussion or were you supposed to respond to it? The actual email was sent because they said, since this keeps happening and the numbers keep increasing, we need to all brush up on our policies um, and know how to handle a, a dead baby, like a body. Like we need to know how to wrap up the baby, put it in a bucket, send it to the morgue and all that. That was the purpose of the email. Could you please read the email? This email is so disturbing. Please read it. And it is. This came, I read it. My beautiful bride, Maggie, read it. We wept. Yeah. I was so upset about it. Michelle, go go ahead and read it. I was traumatized. I couldn't work for four hours or so without thinking about it. It was just in my brain, and I I felt so disgusted. Um, So, okay, I'll read it. Good morning. Good evening, everyone. Well, it seems as though the increase of demise patients that we are seeing is going to continue. There were 22 demises in August, which ties the record number of demises in July 2021. And so far in September, there have been seven, and it's only the eighth day of the month. Now, these statistics include um, CRMC, which is Community Regional Medical Center, and CCMC, Clovis Community Medical Center. So you haven't seen all of them. And some of them have also gone through the emergency department and the ORs, so the surgery um, for a C-section. But there have still been so many in our department. It's a lot of work for you as the bedside RNs, and it's also a lot of work for me. Demises have taken a lot of my time away from the other groups of patients that I serve. So I hope this trend doesn't continue indefinitely. I know a few more that are scheduled to deliver in the week ahead. So unfortunately, the process is going to be very familiar with all of you. Once again, I do so appreciate the time and attention that you give to the patients. When I follow up with them, they remember your names and the way you help them get through a very difficult time. We have recently had a few less than 20-week demises whose parents requested an autopsy. They can request an autopsy on these babies. However, the baby still goes to Sierra Pathology. Sierra Pathology examines every baby less than 20 weeks born without signs of life, but it is only an external exam. For an internal exam, which is what the autopsy is, you will need to have the parents sign an autopsy consent. So send it along with the baby to Sierra Pathology. September 3rd, there was a miscarriage patient that delivered in labor and delivery. The RN placed the very macerated baby in a placenta bucket 
as per the instructions in the demise binder, and then called stockroom for a large paper bag to place the bucket and biohazard bag in. Stockroom told her that she couldn't put the baby in a bucket and bag and had to put the baby in an infant body bag, which she did. She had the clerk call for traction to pick the baby up, which the clerk did. There was a delay of pickup from traction until the following shift, but that clerk told me that they did indeed pick up the baby to take to the lab to go to pathology. From there, things got crazy. Sierra Pathology called me yesterday stating that a funeral home had called to pick up the remains, but they had never received a fetus, only a placenta. The morgue then called me asking if I knew where the baby was because she never received the fetus either. That's when I contacted the RN involved who related the story to me. And from there, I had to reach out to both clerks to find out if the baby had been picked up, then contact Traction to give them a description of the employee who picked up the fetus. Traction called the employee involved who said that he delivered the fetus to the pathology bucket near the lab entrance. So she went to the lab to search for the fetus. It was found in a small pathology refrigerator, shoved way in the back behind some urine specimens. Lab had no idea who had moved it from the pathology bucket near the entrance to the lab, but they con contacted the courier from Sierra Pathology to come and get the baby. When the courier arrived, he refused to take the baby, stating that he was not allowed to take anything in a bag, that it had to be in a plastic container. By this time, the ba body bag was a wet, bloody mess anyway, so I couldn't blame him for refusing to take it. Eva, the extremely helpful employee from Traction, called me to tell me what was happening and that she had hunted down the fetus. I thanked her profusely and then went to the lab with a placenta bucket, a bottle of saline, and a large biohazard bag. Thanks to Teresa Bray for collecting everything for me to transfer the baby so to so the courier would take it to Sierra Pathology. To make this long story shorter, please follow the procedure in the fetal demise binder and do not let other departments tell you how to handle the specimens. The RN involved had been doing the right thing but was told by several different people to just put the baby in a body bag, so she did. There are a couple things that I want to reinforce. Number one, babies that are going to pathology are always small enough to go in the large white buckets. I know that it feels disrespectful to many of you to pour a bottle of saline over the baby. So you can wrap the baby in a saline soaked chucks if it feels better to you, but it must go in a bucket if it goes to pathology. Two, small babies going to the morgue can also be placed in a large white bucket with the saline or saline soaked chucks. Three, Traction informed me that they are no longer allowed to carry specimens in large paper bags, so place the placenta or large white bucket in the large biohazard bag only. Why they are not allowed to transport things in a paper bag, I did not ask, but that is what I was told. Thank you all so much. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't think you can get more dramatic than that when somebody is required to put that into writing for the nurses and the delivery and labor wards of a hospital and to acknowledge the increase in the baby demises in a hospital. These are baby deaths, stillborns, miscarriages. Uh, Michelle, thank you for reading that. Dr. Thorpe, thank you for pushing Michelle to read that and encouraging her to do that. I don't think we can say anything more. I Seriously, I, I think this is stark. I think this is very dark. 
I want to thank you both for joining us tonight. I think it's very important that people understand the severity of what is being witnessed in hospitals. And Dr. Thorpe, by you and your colleagues, even though many of them are not coming forward, I think that people have to understand that we don't have all the answers to this, but what we do have is enough information for people to put on the brakes and to do a deep dive on this and the effects of these shots on pregnant women, on childbearing uh, age women, and God knows probably on the men too, as well as on, on uh, the fetuses being carried by the pregnant mothers. This is, this is very, it's very, very dark time in humanity. And I wanna thank you both for joining us tonight and we'll have you back soon. God bless you and thank you for sharing. Thank you, Christine, for having us on your platform. And I'm sorry this is so dark, but and I thank you for, for getting and being graphic about this, but people need to understand this is very, very serious. God bless you both. It is. God bless thank you. you. God bless you.